Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. We are getting very close to the holiday season, that happy time of year when so many people around the world come together with their highly functional family systems to engage in some good old-fashioned fun. If you thought that that was sarcastic, this episode is probably for you. The truth is that for most people, the holidays are a mixed bag at best. Yes, they can be a wonderful opportunity to connect with loved ones, feel grateful for what we have, get some time off of work, and hey, maybe even pick up something you wanted along the way. But beneath the cheerful facade, the holidays are often a time of heightened stress, anxiety, even grief, loneliness, and frustration can come through during the holidays as well. And it's very normal for a host of mental health challenges to crop up during this time of year, many of which are directly related to those often not-so-functional family systems. So in this episode, we're focusing on how to survive the holidays with the dishes and hopefully your mental health mostly intact. To help me do that, I'm joined today by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm thoroughly psyched about this episode, and I'm immediately thinking of the incredibly common number of uh, movies or TV shows Mm -hmm. that play off holiday gatherings, and they're always about the nightmare, the complexity, Uncle Bob drinks too much, you know, strange cousin Edward suddenly shows up at the front door, you know, (laughs) the list goes on and on and on. Yeah, it's a real issue. I'm so glad we're talking about it. Same. I've been looking forward to this for a while. As a little bit of full disclosure for the listeners, I basically didn't sleep last night. I am very punchy today. Uh, So if that comes through during the recording, then that's why it is the way that it is. So let's start, Dad, with a little bit of a framing question, and you already answered some pieces of it here. Why do you think the holidays are a tough time for people? Well, I think, first off, there's a big range. Mm, Yeah. My holidays... As a kid, we're kind of awkward growing up. There was a fair amount of pressure from my parents who are so well-intended, especially my mother. And there's a lot of poignancy, you know, like Mm -hmm. they wanted to give the gift and they wanted the gifts to be received. But around the giving was a lot of controlling. So there was a lot of performative pressure and sometimes with the movie camera rolling at at the same time. So that's kind of how I grew up. And then visiting my parents with, with you and Laurel too, it brought me back to the scene of the crime. I mean, not about holidays, but just to talk about the power of transference, most broadly stated, mm-hmm. you know, not in the narrow psychoanalytic sense of uh, the reactions that we have to our therapists or countertransference, their reactions to us that involve material brought in from elsewhere. There I was going to, I believe, the very first teacher conference for your teacher who was a wonderful, extraordinary first grade teacher. You had her for first and second grade. And I was walking down the hallway in this elementary school. At that point, I was, gosh, four or five years into my PhD, doing well already. I felt myself shrinking and getting nervous and sort of smallifying as I approached the door to your first grade classroom where we were gonna have the meeting. And I realized, oh, that transferred in from my experiences as a kid going to school. Yeah, there was something about the setting itself that activated that totally. Oh, you know, 
love it? Am I going to be well behaved? It just gets brought in. It's normal. Yeah. So if we go home for the holidays, all that material that we have related to families in general and holiday gatherings in particular can really get brought into the mix. I'm just thinking of myself, just as you thought of yourself there a little bit at the beginning, where I would describe that our our family system, pretty darn functional as family systems go. And even so, there's yeah. still complexity around the holidays, yeah. even inside of that pretty darn functional family yeah. system. We're going to see the relatives. You're in strange settings with people you don't always know really phenomenally well. Yeah. From a kid's perspective, you're all of a sudden surrounded by an awful lot of older people yeah. that you may or may not like jive with or get along with in any kind of a way. And also, I just want to say, you know, if if you're somebody who's listening to this and you truly are like max holidays all the time, holiday <laughs> happiness person incorporated, we are not trying to be a thief of joy here. Oh, no. If you're having a great time, do not let us detract from your party. You know what I mean? But it might help you understand others yeah, a yeah, little love better. Totally, totally. And, and just to add a couple of things to what you've already said, Dad, because I think that that return to the scene of the crime. Yeah. is such a huge piece for so many people, particularly people who had really difficult experiences mm. associated with those family settings that they're now often coming back to after some time away. And to add a layer to it, you've probably changed as a person. Mm. For a lot of people, they only see their extended family and maybe even their like close nuclear family a couple times a year. And particularly if you've been on that couple times a year cycle, for years and years and years at this point, you've done a lot of growing as a person, but often that system will continue to relate to you based on the way that you were back then, because that's the model that the other people have of who you are. And you might start to see kind of a bigger and bigger gap between the person that you are now mm -hmm. and the person that you kind of feel like the rest of that system is relating to. And yeah. that can lead to Lots of feelings of of being misunderstood or misappraised by others, or maybe a, a greater clarity and seeing from you of the ways in which that system is not quite the way you would like it to be, like a little less healthy than you would like, a little less good at communicating than you would like, whatever it is to you. It's really well said. I'm just imagining, first, there's all the planning, and often if you have kids of your own, so now let's say you're an adult child, you're going home as a word to see your parents and other relatives or something. Maybe you have kids of your own and you're already needing to sort of sketch out what's the schedule here? Where are we going to be sleeping? Uh, what's the timing? Wait, uh, I need to make sure you understand that little, little Juan cannot eat gluten. And 12-year-old Susie is now an absolute radical vegetarian. And if you bring in a dead turkey on a platter, she will faint. And that will not be, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? How do you balance yeah. all that? So there's all the preliminaries. Then you get there and there's all this tumult and, and uh, it's wonderful often, but it has these other complexities. And then you're kind of drawn through these various rituals in which internally you're thinking, oh my God, how much longer will this story go on that I've heard already 10 times, right? Mm -hmm. You're just going yeah. through that process. And then you throw in a fair amount of alcohol sometimes, or then you're riding the sugar roller coaster. Oh, I'll have another helping of dessert. And uh, then you get to the end of the long, long day and, you know, tempers fray. 
people can get kind of irritable. I speak from personal experience at the end of one of these long days. And sometimes people can do or say things that can shatter a family system, can have a long, long shadow. So to me, these are, I'll just kind of, I think it's helpful to bring it into the real of what it can really be like for people so they can locate themselves in it and normalize it. It's understandable. We're going to talk more about what to do about it. But the challenges, I think, are really understandable. For sure. And there are just a couple of other things that I want to name here at the beginning. First experiences of grief and loss are really, really common around the holidays. Uh, And this could include everything from feeling estranged from a family system or feeling like you don't have that kind of strong family relationship that the holidays are often built around, the reality of losing loved ones, particularly as they age, but also maybe just in the flow of life, those losses can start to feel very acute when you all have an experience together together and you feel like there's a chair that is not filled at the table. Oh, yeah. And then associated with that, feelings of loneliness are often quite prominent during the holidays as well. Again, maybe most commonly for people who feel like they don't have that strong family support, but it's also very possible to feel even lonelier inside of your family than you are outside of it for some people because you have that sense of isolation from it or that feeling of not being seen in the person that you are. And that can also be a very lonely experience. Mm -hmm. And then layered on top of that are all kinds of things like consumption issues of different kinds, addiction, seasonal affective disorder, uh, dealing with budgeting around a holiday where there's a lot of pressure to get people stuff. Like That can be an incredible source of stress. So all of this stuff is a piece of the puzzle here. But what I want to focus on in the next part of our conversation is why we tend to get sucked back into those old patterns and those old ways of being with other people when we return to the nest or when we go through these holiday experiences, Dad, because you were kind of describing that a little bit in your story of walking down the hallway to the teacher. Exactly, exactly. And just slightly before I go there, people, I think, in these settings can be deeply lonely in the midst of other people. And it's as if sometimes they find themselves as if they are screaming silently inside themselves, and no one is noticing. Boy, family system theory, you're right at my wheelhouse here. A lot of great stuff about it. Highly recommend people check it out. There's some classic stuff from Gregory Bateson about complex systems and family systems. And then you had all these people, Jay Haley, Milton Erickson in his way, but especially Jay Haley, Virginia Satir, and others who really have done a lot with it. The basic notion is that we're social primates. We learn intensely modes of relating. Uh, We're designed to learn those modes of relating. It can be lethal to not learn them early and deeply and well in childhood, and they have a lot of persistence. And what can happen then is you have these reinforcing loops of intertwining behaviors with others in the system, and they reinforce. There's a kind of an equilibrium, and they resist change. It wants to keep coming back to that original form. And so if somebody walks into the home, let's say, who's had a white light moment or a few therapy sessions or they've listened to you for us in the podcast and they've, they've shifted and they see, yeah. these, see things newly and they start acting differently, the system mm. will tend to try to push them back or pull them back into that old way of being. And in that way as well, when we're in these systems, we can very much basically get triggered. It's crazy. I've had a lot of inner 
practice, you know? And so for me, it's, it's humbling and it helps me be more empathic to appreciate the ways that, that I, who by nature also is privileged and is a fairly stubborn and autonomous kind of person, wow, I would walk into my family home in West Covina, you know, in my 30s, and in, I think I was getting better by my 40s, but I could still feel it there. And I would just walk in, and it was like I was 15 years old again. You just feel it. You just feel the sleepiness descend, the irritability come to the fore, the snappishness about little things, mm-hmm. the longings for a certain kind of interaction that just doesn't happen. You know, and you can feel the ways in which you yourself now suddenly start reenacting those old scripts. So don't underestimate the power of these complex systems to maintain themselves and to and to draw you back in. Yeah, yeah. So I heard this line first. I think it was actually from Lori Gottlieb. She probably got it from somewhere else, or maybe it was just like a good writerly turn that she had with it to summarize it this way. But the line is that, our families are the people who have known us the longest and therefore are the most resistant to change. Why the therefore? Because of the impact of early experiences on our framework of people. So the more water that somebody has under the bridge with you, got it. any new experience gets assimilated into the context of all of that water. Yeah. They're not coming to it perfectly fresh. Well They're interpreting your behavior based on of... of 20 to 50 years of previous experience with you, of course. And and that's just normal, right? That's not like a bad thing for people to do. It's totally understandable. But all of the new stuff is framed in the context of that old stuff. So you have this situation where everyone kind of feels a little bit like they're talking parallel to each other sometimes. Mm. And it's very easy to feel misunderstood inside of that context. Then I wonder if another layer of this, just to introduce the stat, and I'm, I'm curious about your take here as somebody who's a little bit older than I am and comes to it from a slightly different experience. I feel like older people inside of family systems, inside of like holiday situations in particular, sometimes have what I'll describe as a yearning problem. Huh. There's this part of them where there's a yearning for a previous way that things were. This time in the past that's rosy, there's a nostalgia around it. Maybe you haven't seen your kids in a really long time. And understandably, you want to kind of reenact some of those old systems. Or there maybe there was a different moment in time where you felt like you were really seen in a certain kind of uh, way that your kids no longer see you. Or maybe in some situations, that person just had a lot more power back then. Mm. And they had a lot more influence. And It doesn't feel so good to not have that power and influence in the same way. And so there's this kind of desire to return to that moment in time that could be conscious or I think for most people is actually just a totally subconscious thing that's going on. And I'm wondering what your take is on that, Dad. Uh, Well, I'm sighing because there's a kind of pathos here. Mm, Yeah. There definitely is that occasional aging parent or relative who really deliberately, consciously wants to make everybody miserable just because they get off on that, all right? Or there's a feeling of like vengeance or something associated yeah, with that. Yeah, but almost never. Totally. Most of the time, yeah. there's just pathos. And I can yeah. think of, in a way, two kinds of situations. I've seen both of them. One is one in which, if you have, a gener- if you have generations coming together, 
which of course is normal in hunter-gatherer bands. Think I talk about multi-generational. It was all there right from the start. On the one hand, I definitely have known a number of people in the older generation category who've just been astonishingly clueless, mind-blowing. And they know predictably what will happen if they bring up topic X or if they push on subject Y or if they act yet again Z. They know it and they still do it. They just, they don't care enough to budge. You know, there's a place for will, for self-control, for knowing that there's a better way and regulating yourself to some extent. And I'm just kind of astonished at people when the stakes are high. Because guess what? When you're an oldster, you need them a lot more than they need you, especially in Western cultures. It's so easy for you to do something dumb as an oldster that leads the youngsters not coming back next year and sending sure. you a card instead. So the stakes are high, so don't be, mm-hmm. don't be dumb. <laughs> Sorry, I got a good night's sleep, but maybe I'm disinhibited <laughs> like you are. I don't know. You're, you're the one who's coming in hot during this episode, Dad. Yeah, I, I don't think you actually. Then there's have you another the TV show, The Bear. But, but by I'll, the way, it just as a quick point here, have you watched the TV show The Bear? Did you ever about watch the, the bear? cooking about the restaurant? Yeah, restaurant. Loved it, Chicago. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, so Genius. in the second season of the show, uh, The Bear, there's this episode called Fishes, which is a reenactment of a family dinner during the holidays. And it's kind of an episode in a bottle. He's having a flashback towards this previous moment in his life. Yeah. But it's just like a beautiful and incredibly chaotic description of a very, very, very dysfunctional version of what we're talking about here. Yeah. But it does a wonderful job of expressing all of the things we're talking about while also, I think, expressing... The reason I, I chimed in there, Dad, was when you were like, you know, just don't do something crazy. This is an episode that is like all something crazy and people doing things that they know are going to turn out poorly and yet they have no ability to stop yeah. them. And yeah. I think that that's, you know, part of this is that it's all it's all well and good to be like, well, you know, just don't, just don't do it. But man, these are powerful forces we're messing with here. Oh, boy. That show, by the way, made me want to work in a restaurant and want to never work in a restaurant. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> okay, then on the other hand, there is this other situation. Yeah, yeah, I think it's pretty common where honestly, the oldsters, they're so well-intended. Oh, for sure. They're sweet. Yeah, a lot of the time. You know, they really are. And maybe they're a little clumsy about this or that, or I don't know, they rattle on a little too long. But really, so much of what's going on is this poignant, longing Mm. just to have it be nice just to offer the gift just to be together you know and that's a lot what's there and and when i look back on the many times i went home i have a lot of regret about you know rolling in and my mom in particular was so gracious so wanted to have her gifts appreciated and eh we would just do little things that were just not very gracious in the receptivity of those gifts. And I just think, you know, sometimes whatever might be awkward in the surface presentation underneath it all is this longing to have their love received. Mm. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, I think that like the motivation is whatever the motivation is. Yeah. Often very pure in its motivation, not always, but often. But alongside that pure motivation can be a lot of behavior that is not 
fantastic from all the different angles here. I mean, you might be listening to this as an older person going like, I need to hear some advice on how to make it through this moment in time because my kids are freaking crazy. And every time that they they come home, they're the ones smashing the dishes and messing up the lawn and doing whatever it is that they're doing, making my life just miserable while I'm just trying to do my best here to connect with them in different kinds of ways. So I'm not just I'm not trying to like create a purely ageist paradigm here. Yeah. I just know my experience as a 35-year-old who doesn't have kids going through, you know, most of my interactions are with younger people going to see their parents. Um, and so that's kind of the side of it that you hear it from. And then other side of the tracks, dad, you're, you're speaking a little bit from that experience as an older person, understandably. May I just summarize my two points? Yeah, please go ahead. A, don't do stupid stuff. B, give them a break. <laughs> yeah. I think that there's a there's a nice there's a nice dance between those two points. I think that's a good point, Dad. Something that can come through though in these settings, like, is a certain weaponization of morality that I just want to name here. What a phrase! Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but just like the whole, you know, gratitude is a powerful weapon. The notion that you should be grateful is a very, very powerful weapon for different kinds of control, and yeah. you just hear it all the time in these sorts of settings. Like, why aren't you just grateful that? I, I birthed you, you know, that I made you this nice meal, whatever it is, when sure you are doing that, but the wrapping paper that that thing is coming in is filled with 70 things that the other person said, I don't want you to do that, or no, I don't want that from you, or hey, you really can't talk to me that way anymore. Does that kind of make sense, Dad? And so there's this way in which the appeal to that like top-level morality starts to be the reason that a lot of like pretty bad behavior gets explained away because there's kind of the ultimate trump card there in some ways of like, but I'm giving you these other gifts, so isn't this behavior okay? And a lot of the time the answer is no, it's not okay. This is such a great topic. I don't think I've sighed this much in any of our <laughs> podcasts before. Because <laughs> I could see both sides. that we're doing something right maybe, yeah. I've been on both sides, really. Hmm. And so on the one hand, it is astonishing the extent to which the older generation who desperately wants to see their kids and their grandkids, right? And the kids and the grandkids hold all the cards of power, pretty much. Because if you mess up as an older, your kid can just walk. It's the easiest thing in the world. Politely or rudely, they can just walk. So it just blows my mind sometimes that people keep shooting themselves in the foot in the same ways in the face of repeated clear communications from the younger generation about what they want. That kind of blows my mind. Okay, on the one hand. On the other hand, wow, I've seen people in the younger generation just be, in my view, capricious and reactive. Now, maybe they're turbocharged because of their own transference from childhood, right? And they've had it up to here with their parent and parental power and so forth. But a, a kind of gracelessness in just not lighting up a little bit to receive the gift, imperfectly given, awkwardly expressed, fine. You know, and just uh, bringing a kind of generosity of the heart to the situation. So I'm on both sides. It's kind of like I said, you know, don't do stupid stuff, older people, and kind of a break, younger people, kind of both together, right? That's that, And I've seen what I would consider to be 
missteps, errors, unnecessary foolishness on both sides. To clarify maybe what I was saying, that wasn't a aged comment. Anybody can do what I described. Yeah, That weaponization of morality tends to come through, I think, just factually, more from older people because there are more things to weaponize. Oh, yeah, like you're saying, you owe me. Like the gift, life, whatever it is. Yeah, Yeah. totally. So, you know, it's a tool that's more available to them, but anyone of any age is capable of being an asshole about any of this stuff, to be perfectly clear. And I think that what we're describing for many people, like the core pain experience, is the feeling of loss of agency. Like for a lot of people, they didn't necessarily have a great time in their family systems. Or maybe they did have a great time. And yet, nonetheless, they don't want to go back and do this uh, several times a year inside of that chaotic environment that we're describing with all of those stressors, all of those uncomforts, all of that. Like, they just don't want to do that. And yet, there's this feeling of obligation associated with it, right? And so I think that one of the big antidotes to, to that pain is doing what we can to reclaim some feeling that we have influence over the situation, that we are making a choice about something here in our engagement with the whole system. So I think a place that we can look here is like, what are the freedoms that are available to you? Hmm. Particularly freedoms that might not have been available to you back then, whatever that means to you. Yeah. And what are the ways that you have to express yourself inside of that setting? What are the communications that you can deliver, you know, in an appropriately loving way? What are the communications that you can not deliver because you're making a conscious choice not to? What can you opt out of? What can you say, hey, I'm going to show up for this part of it and not that part of it. And I'm definitely not showing up for that part of it if Uncle Todd is there. You know, whatever it is that makes sense for you to claim for yourself. And how can you express yourself inside of that setting in a way that makes it meaningfully different for you, that that could make it more enjoyable or could remove some of the stress that leads to some of these negative experiences that we're talking about here? Totally true. Fences make for good neighbors, distance in the service of attachment, and have your own ride. In other words, that was a big mm-hmm. rule for me. Yeah. Have my own transportation so that I could get away and to some extent create plausible reasons to detach for a bit, just to kind of gather my breath, recenter myself, just get a break. I remember one time we brought you with us down to my parents for the holidays and and I said, probably because it was true, but it was a very convenient truth, that you had a big school report and I was helping you with it. And my parents were both academically motivated. So that was a trump card that I could play that would make it okay in that system to, to have that spaciousness. I'm thinking also, Forrest, about your brilliant phrase, the weaponization of morality. And one of the things that's coming to me is that very often the parties coming together, okay, cousins, aunts, uncles, family, friends, whoever's coming together, including across generations, sometimes have a backlog of oughts, morality, Mm. but shoulds. They have a backlog of shoulds. And that backlog generally sort of simmers along. But when everybody's in the same room and it's been a long day, a lot of sugar, maybe some alcohol, those oughts can really come to the fore. And how do we manage that, right? How do we honor our values? That's the basis of a should. How do we make room for theirs? 
but in a way that it's not so explosive. I know we're going to slide more into what to do really soon, but the thing that um, I think a lot about is individuals being motivated to tread lightly without walking on eggshells, where you just give a little thought to what you're about to say. Do you really need to say it? Is it going to be really skillful to say it? Maybe you need to say it, but do you really need to say it? So that's one thing. Another thing is to build in more buffers. So for example, you can lower your expectations. It's just an event. It's just a day and a half. It's not that big a deal, right? We don't have to cover all this ground. It doesn't have to be so enormous. Or if they over there do their thing, inside yourself, you can just have more of a sense of distance from it. Hey, I don't have to agree. I'm not implicated. They're not controlling me anymore. I'm going to do what I want as soon as I leave here. Our family's fine. Mm -hmm. My friends are intact. That's them. They were raised that way. You know, buffer, 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 buffer. When do you when do you think about all that? I, I think a version of what you're describing is this idea that boundaries aren't arguments. Ah, wow. Another great phrase. Yeah. So so like what I mean by that is is just that assuming that somebody is an adult and therefore has the ability to do something or not do something. You know, we're all making choices all of the time. If yeah. you truly have the ability to not participate in something and you go you are making the choice to participate. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe you're making that choice for a bunch of reasons that you don't like. You don't want to make your mother or your child or your grandparent or your whoever or your sister really unhappy because you didn't go. That's still a choice. Even if you actually don't want to be there, if you opt in, you've made that choice and that's okay. And so we can kind of like claim the fullness of that choice. And if you're in that position to leave, that means that you're in a position to have boundaries about what goes on at this event. And having a boundary is not having an argument. Like you can just say, hey, I'm going to do X if this happens. I'm going to leave the table if we start talking about fill in the blank, politics, religion, COVID, vaccine conspiracy theories, you know, whatever it is. I'm just going to leave. I'm going to leave the table. And I'm not charged about it. I'm not going to make a stink about it. I'm not going to get into it with Uncle Todd, but I am just going to walk away. And I just, I'm letting you know that this is what is going to happen if you do this thing. And then in response to that, the other person might even understandably say, wow, I really don't like that you're going to do that. You know, they might tell you that you shouldn't do that. They might make you wrong for doing that. They might weaponize that morality at you. You could just be like, okay. People sometimes feel like an obligation to defend their boundary through argument. Mm -hmm. And you actually just don't have to. You can just have, you can just do it. You can just yeah. walk away. So well said, yep. That's kind of revelatory actually for people sometimes. And, and I know that it sounds like such an obvious thing when you say it, mm. but in the moment, I've just had so many times in my life personally where I felt like obligated to fight about something or obligated to argue. And it's been incredibly powerful for just me on a personal level to increasingly get to this place where I can feel comfortable just saying, oh, okay, and then just letting it go or doing what I'm going to do anyways, or whatever it is that I think I need to do in order to kind of like defend my peace a little bit. Fantastic advice. We all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. 
But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging directly with their proprietary OS01 peptide. The OS01 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OS01 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. Now I'm going to say something that I don't know... (laughs) Could be kind of schmaltzy. It's something I've been thinking about a lot, which is you walk down a street and you see all these people walking past you and you look at their faces, you get a vibe. You can just feel a lot of them or many, if not all people have a secret struggle. They're dealing with stuff. And meanwhile, you can kind of see about them that there are things to appreciate about them. I've just been really struck by how stingy so many people are about giving appreciation of others. That's authentic. They either do appreciate something about other people, but they don't really communicate it, or they don't take the extra 10 seconds inside themselves to find something to authentically appreciate about that other person which then in turn they could express. And I've been so struck by the the benefits of doing that with people and how much we feel touched ourselves when others express it. Just they see the good in us. They affirm us. They delight in us. They they rejoice in the in what is good in us. They're happy for us that we're good in that way, right? And so In the holidays, I think about a way of being that is both very 
moral in the ultimate sense, I think. It's very benevolent and pro-social, and it's also very much enlightened self-interest. It's to rest mm. as much as you can in a kind of simple good wishes and appreciating of other people, where you're oriented toward them in a genuinely warm way. You're interested in them. You're seeing them what's good in them. You're wanting to you know, get in touch with sort of what's underneath the surface and how they're doing and what their hopes and, you know, hopes and dreams are these days, what the good news in their life these days or the tough things they're grappling with. And if you're that person in the family system, there are a dozen people yelling at each other and throwing bread rolls across the table, and you're that one person who's just kind of smiling, appreciating different people, obviously not letting yourself be bullied or you know manipulated and so forth, you're going to have a much better time <laughs> home for the holidays. And I can think of myself in situations that were fraught socially, whether it was a holiday setting or a professional setting. And I kind of found myself taking refuge in this stance of just, just kind of being there to bless others, wish them well, not necessarily in a religious sense, but just bless them, wish them well, see what's good in them, enjoy them, appreciate them, simple. So to the extent you can come from that stance, wow, could be a good one. Yeah, and I'm sort of orbiting a feeling here while you're describing that process, Dad, which mm. I think is available to people if they feel kind of low stakes about the whole thing. When the stakes feel kind of low, it's much easier to come to an interaction from a stance of like, well, you know, they're over there, I'm over here, it's all kind of okay, you know, blessings to you, have a nice life, wave politely as you leave and kind of call it a day for the next six months. But I, I just feel like a lot of people don't feel that way. And it feels very charged and very high stakes and very intense. And they're the person who's getting yelled at at the table, and they're the person who the bread roll is being flung at. Yeah. And in that context, I, I think it's very, very difficult to just like carry a loving disposition, much as we might want to from a stance of like practice or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm saying the crazier the setting, the safer it is to come in with a blessing disposition. Now, in the extreme of craziness, if there's physical violence or people are mistreating your children, People are cross, let's say people are crossing lines with their language, whether it's directed at you or just they're being a, you know, disgust, you know, kind of a disgusting bigot uh, and trying to get other people to agree with them, whatever it is. Sure, you, you have your line and so forth. But that internal attitude of basically not uh, being interested in being combative within the frame of your clear boundaries in the extreme, but inside most normal range situations, just normal, neuro sure. normal neurotic behavior yeah. with a little yeah. with too much wine flowing. Yeah. I just think that, you know, I kind of want to put up <laughs> a plug in for a way of being that builds on a broader way of being that I think would serve the world more and more. And I think it would serve most situations to just take it on oneself. Maybe do it out of a kind of pro-social responsibility, but definitely out of enlightened self-interest to rest in seeing what's good about others. Now, I have to say this about you, Forrest. I've seen you in a lot of settings socially. Mm -hmm. You do that. Sure. Yeah, you do it. You do it. And I've seen a lot of people who don't. 
They just kind of are inert. They're not, they're not, they're not sending out the stink eye to everybody, but boy, are they not coming from authentically available levels of affirming of others and interest in others and appreciation of others, including expressed. And I think, hey, that's something to think about, including as this kind of a self-defense strategy. Yeah, I think that I am. So I'm I'm approaching this whole question from the framework of a person that I know. They are the sum of a dozen people that I know who so do not want to go back home for Christmas. They just so they so don't want to do it. They feel kind of stuck, they feel kind of trapped. Their dad drinks too much. They're kind of doing it for their sister because their sister's 17, they're 26, and they're just like, I'm just going to help you kind of make it out. And there's this dance inside of that person between two desires. The first desire is to flip a table, burn the whole house down, and tell everybody to frankly go f*** themselves. Okay? That's desire A. Got it. Then alongside that is desire B, which is to just get through the situation with as little drama as possible, maintain the blessing disposition, and so on. I am sure that there is a parental version of that that exists. And so I'm not trying to just be like ageist about this. I'm sure there is a version where the parents are like, dear God, you know, I, there's, I, I'm just so sad because I love my son so much. And my son is also an alcoholic who becomes a raging drunk every time that we have Christmas dinner. And I've told him not to drink at the table 17 times and he just won't stop. But I love him. So here we are and we're kind of stuck with each other. And so I, I hear what you're saying about the kind of like notion of just carrying a broad blessing disposition. And I'm not trying to poo-poo it. I'm just thinking from the stance of that person who's listening to us talk about this and is going, man, I don't know. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. so that's kind of the framework and why I, I get a little leery when where there's a feeling of kind of coming back to like, well, just kind of get along and get through it and call it a day, which I think is just really tough for a lot of people. Does that make any sense? Am I, am I being kind of coherent here? I'm so glad you brought up the example, and I'm so glad we're yeah. talking about this. We've kind of stumbled into yeah. it. Mm -hmm. Partly, and as, as a frame, there are certain factors where, that are in the mix here too, which is mm -hmm. the role of willfully drawing yourself into a way of being and basically staying there as long as you're this side of some threshold or this side of some boundary, okay? Yeah, There's that sure. aspect of it. Then there's the aspect mm -hmm. of where are your long-term best interests? Yeah. And compared to immediate reactivity, there's that dimension to it. And I want to say that I've definitely been that 26-year-old. Sure. Yeah. Right? And I think if I could go back and talk to myself as that 26-year-old, given the fairly kind of normal neurotic range I was dealing with, which was quite neurotic, my family of origin, but it yeah. was nothing like the extreme craziness where obviously you just say, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving and let's talk in a few weeks, right? Something like yeah. that. You know, if I had kind of given myself a few pep talks before walking in the front door to just kind of calm myself down and be more chill, that would help me. It was enlightened self-interest. If I had done the Aikido of love, where just give a little more at the start, you'll get a little more at the end, you know, often. Mm -hmm. Or you won't have to keep giving. You know, like very often, if we 
give, I've just noticed this for us, that if we give people 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 10 minutes, sometimes a little more, of just sort of warm, appreciative attention, they climb down off their high horse, they chill out, they kind of settle down, and they start treating us better. And meanwhile, we feel better along the way, kind of saying that. And I'm just, I'm just sort of introducing that, not as a should, but I'm just saying, hey, maybe this is what you and I are talking about, is how many moves do you have? How many tools do you have in your toolkit? Yeah. 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 And this is one of the, I'll call it a move. One of the tools. Yeah, it, great. It only works if it's authentic, but we can willfully drop ourselves into an authentic way of being that's not initially native to us. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great way of talking about it, Dad, and I appreciate you framing it as this is a tool. It is not the only way to be. It's not the way that you should be per se, but it is a useful way of being, and it's definitely something that we all want to have access to. I want to have access to that yeah. increasingly in my life. Something that also I think we've kind of found here is this tension that often exists for people between wanting to just say the thing, whatever the thing is, wanting to have it out, wanting to be like, you can't talk to oh, me that yeah. way anymore, wanting to wanting to just do it. You're recreating my young adulthood here. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. traumatic. <laughs> I think I need to talk. Is, is Elizabeth available? I think I need some therapy. Uh, we, we could call her from the other room. She'll do some somatics with you, Dad. Really yeah. calm you down. I don't know I'm if that breathe. would be ethical, but you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and so there's just this tension we all have. And the reality is that for many people, again, what happens is that these kinds of family interactions, even talks about talking, like how are we going to relate to each yeah. other, get sort of stored up. Yeah. for the holidays, because that's when we see each other, right? Yeah. Um, so you've got that on the one hand, the desire to just do it, versus this kind of more logical, rational, reasonable part of you, maybe also a, a, a loving and caring part of you, frankly, that both knows rationally that there's probably not a lot of cheese down that tunnel, or even if there is cheese, getting to that cheese is going to lead to a lot of short-term disruption of what's going on. Yeah. Or alternatively, wow, like maybe that communication's just going to be really painful for this other person and the combination of not a lot of cheese and a lot of emotional disturbance for somebody is just just kind of not worth it. And so you're balancing those two different desires yeah. and I'm wondering what you've seen there maybe for yourself or working with other people about doing that dance. Yeah. You and I were kind of joking about uh needing to uh have a position. Like what's your stance? Mm -hmm. What's your orientation? Yeah. So I think knowing what your stance is before you go in will really help because when things are happening and the oatmeal hits the fan and then totally. suddenly they say that thing, it blows your mind and you're, yeah. it's literally like you are plugged in, but it's like your fingers are in the socket and the rage just comes through you or the shock. It really helps. <laughs> to, you know, have that stance developed in your mind before you go in. Yeah. What are your red lines? To, to have made the choice before you're in the room. Yeah. yeah what totally. are your red lines? What are your, what are your boundaries? What are your refuges? What are your go-tos? What are your phrases? So you know actually the phrase you're going to say, something like, literally, pardon me, I'm going to leave the room. Whatever it might be, know that. Second, I think it's really helpful in the run-up to this, and we can apply this not just to going home for the holidays, uh, if if that's still your home, it's just whatever, going somewhere for the holidays. Could be for a job interview. It could be a date with someone that you're really, you're really hoping it goes well. 
it could be a really delicate conversation with somebody. In any case, how do you want to be? Because being is the origin of doing. What's the zone? We talk about the green zone. Uh, I think about, gosh, back in the day with Carlos Castaneda and Don Juan, even though Castaneda made up much of it, still, if you take it as fiction, it's good fiction. You know, what's your place of power, right? Where do you get your, where do you draw power from, in a sense, you know? So you feel that. What's your power pose, you know? Just boom. And know what that is. That can really help, too. And I want to say that in the range of tools that are available, they have to do with two things. What's available with regard to what's outside you? And frankly, what's available with regard to what's inside you? And I think the truth also is that many people, when they park the car or they get out of the Uber and they walk up the steps, really, they're running on empty already. Hmm. They don't have a lot of stuff on the shelves, Mother Hubbard's cupboard inside themselves. And and I want to I honor that and name that. Of course they don't have much inside, right? They were plundered in part by the people who love them, who they're about to open the door and say hello to. I mean, it's complicated. So what do you do? And I, I do think that setting yourself up as much as you can in advance, right? Knowing that you have your own transportation, maybe spending the night elsewhere and just setting that up in advance, maybe with a face-saving excuse, maybe secretly bringing your own food with you, the kind that is safe for you to eat. And so you can just kind of taste what's on the plate or to say, oh, it's delicious. I'm just not that hungry and feed yourself in the bathroom. I haven't done that particular thing, but I know people who have just things like that. Have a person you can call, you know, set yourself up, set yourself up so that it's as successful for you as possible. Yeah. And then I think Maybe I'll just finish on this. It goes to your point about weaponization of morality in part two. To clarify in your mind, what's your duty to them and what's your duty to yourself? And with that in mind, recognize also what's in your enlightened self-interest. And it can be really quite clarifying to realize, no, I really appreciate you, Dad. You know, you supported me financially for the first 20 years of my life. You had a rocky childhood yourself. I get that. You know, you've been warm and nurturing in the ways that you've been alongside other things. I get that. At this point, I feel like I really have fulfilled my duties to you. You're an adult. You know, a lot of us have said stuff to you over the years. You have not listened. You have not learned. You have chosen willfully to be ignorant and have a flat learning curve. And honestly, I have fulfilled my duties to you. And now I'm just simply left with my own personal code about what kind of a a moral, decent, integrity, gracious, large-hearted person do I want to be in this life, generically. And that's the extent of it. You know, I have exhausted my individual duty to you. And meanwhile, I have a lot of duty to myself and maybe a duty to other people in the room, like my long-suffering mother who you've been browbeating and dominating for 43 years. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to really ally with her here. And, or, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a duty to my kids or to my younger sibling, you know, I'm clarifying that. And in that context, there could still be the enlightened self-interest that says, you know, the ground is not prepared here for me to bring in my bill of particulars. Yeah. The the cards stacked against me, I'm outnumbered, outgunned, it's a family system, it's impervious, this is not the time and the place, all right? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be simple. 
I'm going to be relatively frictionless. I'm going to glide through <laughs> the scene here, protecting my true interests, wishing people well along the way, and you know, slide on out the door after a day or two. Yeah, I think a huge part of this, Dad, that you're kind of helping me find and how I think about it is knowing what a win looks like for you. Excellent. Because I think that in almost every situation, maybe some wins are just not available, but in almost every situation, there is a kind of win that is available yeah. to us. And maybe to other people, it wouldn't look like a win, but we know that that was a win, whatever it was. Maybe yeah. it's just getting through the dinner. Maybe it's getting home again with your mental health mostly intact. Maybe it is having one really lovely interaction with the person that you really care about who's there. Maybe it is working on that blessing disposition that you were talking about, Dad, and taking the whole exercise as a place of practice for you. Maybe it's holding a boundary without yeah. getting into an argument. Maybe it's saying no to the whole exercise and you know, exercising your will there in a way that you haven't been able to in the past. Whatever, whatever a win looks like for you, Knowing what a win is and defining it to yourself before you get in the room, as you were describing, I think is like a huge resource in this whole thing. Yeah, beautiful. Because it gives us an opportunity to actually feel good about something also. Yeah. So as we kind of come toward the end here, Dad, I do want to ask you about something that we haven't really talked about throughout the conversation, but I do know is a big piece for people, and that's feelings of grief and loss. And I know that you recently did a fair amount of work related to a workshop that you did focused yeah. on grief and loss. So I want to kind of leverage that a little bit here also. But there are two kinds of loss that stand out to me here. The first is true loss, like a person has passed away. Somebody is not at the gathering for whatever reason. You feel like you've lost something that really did exist in the past. But there's this other kind of loss that I think a lot of people feel that rarely gets talked about. And it's a feeling of yearning for something that never really existed. Oh, yeah. Because during the holidays, we receive all of these messages about the way the holidays are supposed to be. They're supposed to be this happy time. We're supposed to have this tight-knit family. We're supposed to just be having fun throughout the whole darn thing. And that just is not the way that it is for us and really never has been. And there's this feeling of loss there for like, ah, uh, if only. And... I wish I had a lot of great advice around it. I don't feel like I do. So I would love to just get your take on that and uh, any resources that you think can be helpful for people. Well, it's an enormous topic. It's certainly a separate episode, but we'll do a little at the end here. Well, as someone who's grappled with loss, and sometimes loss is mingled with one's own mistakes, which then bring up, of course, regrets and remorse, it's complicated. I think there's some term in the DSM four, uh, or now it's six, probably. I, you know, I lost track at five, maybe seven. Who knows? But anyway, uncomplicated bereavement or complicated bereavement. And I think, frankly, a lot of bereavement is is pretty complicated. So first of all, just feeling it, feeling it with kindness, letting yourself feel it, letting it flow through you. I think that's. Maybe the most important thing, bottled up grief or grief that's suppressed and thus bottled up, becomes stagnant, fetid, stinky, not good. Just letting it flow and being prepared to be surprised because sometimes you think you're done with it and then another thing will happen and poof, right? 
And so you just don't you just don't know it could come from left field. So that's one thing. The second thing has to do with there's so much wisdom about grief and loss. And just to name one of my favorite, absolute favorite people about it, both academic and you know, someone who's lived through it herself, Joanne, Professor Joanne Cacciatore, I believe in Arizona State University, I think. And just beautiful stuff. So a lot of resources there. If you'll permit me, maybe I'll just bust out a little cosmic wisdom that I've been reflecting. No, I, I, I never, I never restrain you from busting out <laughs> cosmic wisdom, Dad. And I would love some cosmic wisdom from you, Dad. Well, on the one side, there's the truth that loving is losing, hmm. and the saying that's true, which is that grieving is loving. We didn't care. We wouldn't grieve. And it's important to be in touch with the love in the grief. And neurologically, when we are focusing on the love aspect or the caring aspect, let's say in compassion, alongside the bitter of the grief, maybe the guilt, the love itself helps us bear the bitter and is protective, including in physiological ways. So being attentive to the aspect of the loving that is in grieving, the loving that is in losing. You know, we tend to get fixated on the grief or fixated on the loss, but it can really help to kind of back up a step almost or open into the, it's like the setting of the jewel. What is it that holds the grief mm. or the loss? The, the love, the, the good-heartedness, the good intentions that are, that, are nat- that are native to you, that really are who you are. And then the other side of the other part of the truth is that even though we are continually losing, including radically each moment as it passes through our fingers, we are continually gaining. We are, as I wrote recently, the phrase, we are living in the giving that is love in the emerging of consciousness continually into the present and of reality altogether, the material universe into the present. And having some awareness of the inherent generosity in consciousness and the inherent generosity in the expansion of the universe, pulling us forever into that which is new, pulling us into creation continually. If you can get in touch with that, and recognize that that's part of life too. Yes, all you know, the leaves fall and new trees are born and growing. Yes, empires rise and fall, species come and go, and still life keeps on going. The universe keeps on appearing. That can actually be a real comfort alongside the knowing of your own good heart. Well, I really love that, Dad. I think that was beautifully said. And... Also, I just think that this topic in general, particularly the notion of the the feeling of loss for the thing that was never really there in the first place, or the feeling of yearning for the thing that you haven't had. Yeah. For starters, I think that for many people, a real resource is reinterpreting what a family is and what their family is and who they find that family with, and opening to a slightly more flexible interpretation of what it means to be home for people. And I know that particularly people who have had a lot of PTSD experiences or have complex PTSD, things like that, a real part of the healing process is focused on finding the environments wherein 
they feel at home mm. and they do feel truly comfortable and safe and mm. like they're receiving that thing that they that a part of them feels like they missed out on. That can be a real resource for people. And sometimes we sort of underestimate what's kind of still possible for us in the right now. And sure, yeah, you can't go back in time, you can't have those experiences in exactly that way, but something I've been really working on inside of my life is getting a bit more open and a bit more flexible about what I think of as like the right kind of experience. Because I think for a long time, I was pretty pretty rigid about what I wanted and how I thought I was supposed to get it and what a good version of a thing looked like. And over time, I became a little bit more flexible around that. And that opened up opportunities for me to feel so many different, so many more opportunities for me to feel good and feel like it was enough and to feel really completed by an experience that I was having or a space that I was in or the people who were around me. And increasingly moving toward a feeling of, as you like to say sometimes, Dad, like already enoughness. Yeah. The feeling that it, the experience is okay just as it is. Yeah. And that can sometimes be present alongside these sorts of yearning desires as well. And we've done some episodes about that in the past. I'm sure we'll do more in the future. That's beautifully said, Forrest, really. Mm. And I know we're finishing here. I'll just say that as a person quote-unquote, establishes their position, not in a rigid sense, but they just kind of know, okay, this is how I want to be. And yeah, including totally. the the embodied innards experience of dignity and simplicity and you know, non-combativeness and so forth. I think a part of that position can be, especially for someone whose childhood had all kinds of missing pieces, and they're, they're still over the holidays, maybe visiting one or more of their parents or people they grew up with. They're, part of that position could be something on the order of, I'm not going to pretend any longer. I'm not pretending anymore. And I'm not here to struggle with anybody. That's not the be-all and end-all, but I, that's a way sometimes it can be named in a person's mind. Yeah, well, I love that, Dad. And this ended up being... You know, I think a very nuanced and a, a pretty deep exploration for both of us of this topic. Oh, yeah. And I think we got into it as we went along, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As as sometimes happens, I think we kind of found our way way there. And I think what just stands out to me about it is how complicated this stuff is mm. and how it's very, very hard to speak to everybody's individual experience, of course. Yeah. Because those experiences can be so varied. So if you feel like you got to the end of this and you don't necessarily see yourself in the conversation, for for starters, you know, my apologies. But also, man, there's just the range of experiences here is so broad. And I hope that there was something in something that we shared uh, that you got value out of and that you find useful as you uh, decide how to navigate this time of year. Today, I had a really interesting conversation with Rick focused on making it through the often difficult holiday season. And we began by talking about some of the reasons that the holidays are hard for people. And one of the first things that we emphasized, one of the first things that we settled on, was this way in which returning to old situations can activate old patterns inside of us. And seeing people that we have a lot of water under the bridge with can be a very, very complicated process for people. And of course, this is particularly true for people who have difficult experiences 
related to the people that they're going back and seeing over the holidays. But it's also true if you had a perfectly normal, even perfectly loving childhood. Because speaking personally, I've got some complexities about the holidays too. It is not all smooth sailing for me, even though I was extremely privileged to come from a family that was really very sane, where I was fortunate enough to have a good relationship with pretty much everyone who was involved. Our view of other people is heavily shaped by the early experiences that we have with them. And then new information is assimilated into that old paradigm. We don't construct a totally new uh, structure of who somebody is based on the experiences that we're having with them in the present day. And why would we? It's totally rational to interpret somebody's present-day behavior through the lens of all of the other experiences that you've had with them. But in our family systems, the core model that we're carrying around of the other people is very old. And yeah, we update it over time, but we update it slowly. And even when we've updated it a lot, a lot of that old material is still hanging around in the background, influencing how we perceive them, how we interpret behavior, and how we show up as individuals in relationship with them. Because Rick emphasized his own experience of going in as a parent in a parent-teacher association kind of meeting and feeling like his old student material was getting activated, feeling uncomfortable in the uh, walk to the principal's office. And then this layers on top of all kinds of other issues that can come up around the holidays. The often understandable desire in some people to return to a previous moment in time, maybe one that they view really nostalgically. Other people's desire to assert themselves and show that they don't have to put up with whatever it is anymore. Then layered on top of that are all the pressures of the holidays, our desire to have it be this really idealized kind of way, all of the cultural messaging that we receive about it, the economic pressure that people could feel, the uh, general discomfort and stress associated with the travel and the planning and the putting the effort in, and all of this stuff often culminating in an experience that can feel you know, a little stressful, a little underwhelming, a little not quite the way that we wanted it to be. And this is before we get to any real relational interpersonal issue that might exist with another person at this holiday gathering. And one of the ways that those issues commonly present themselves is through what I called during the episode the weaponization of morality. There are these expectations, these moral expectations that are placed on people very prominently during the holidays, but just kind of in general. The first is what I'll call a gratitude expectation. I got you this thing, why aren't you happy for it? I gave you life. Why don't you properly appreciate that? Don't you see all of the effort that I put in on your behalf? Why can't you just be grateful for it? Maybe there's a love expectation. We're a family. Why don't you love us just because we're a family? Or uh, maybe there's almost a we're all stuck in this together expectation. You know, family has to stick together, family has to support themselves through thick and thin. And what we bumped into over and over again throughout the episode, Rick and I even modeled this a little bit in our interaction with each other throughout the episode, where we just came at it from different perspectives. Because often with these situations, it's a yes and kind of thing. Yes, all of those things might be true. Maybe we ideally do just always love our family. Maybe we ideally do stick together, appreciating the sacrifices that somebody made for us, giving them credit for 
the incredible amount of effort that it takes to raise a child, the things that they didn't do because they chose to bring us into the world, you know, there can be a, a, an appropriate appreciation for that that I think is really real, and I don't want to lose sight of that. And on the other hand, a lot of the time, statements like that are used as excuses for bad behavior. And it can also be used as a way to control people that have slipped outside of the control of the system. And this is a really important point, because systems resist change. Pretty much every system resists change. So if you feel like you've been pulled back into an old role by a family system, by a holiday system, whatever it is that you're going back into, that is a very common experience. And these systems resist change because change is uncomfortable for everybody involved. So if you've gone through a change process inside of yourself and now you're sliding back into this family system, well, the puzzle piece might not fit with the other puzzle pieces, right? And that means that people need to move into new and unfamiliar roles. Maybe they need to stretch themselves in ways that they don't want to. They need to change in ways that they're uncomfortable with. And maybe it's disruptive to the power dynamics that have been established inside of the group. These are all reasons that the system might resist change. And for people who have claimed a lot of power inside of their own life, you know, they've grown up, they've moved away, they've got the way of being now with their family that feels increasingly comfortable to them. One of the things about the holidays that can be the most difficult is this feeling of a loss of agency, where you feel like you've established this influence over your life, and now it's been kind of taken away from you, and you need to uh, live by the old forms. Basically, you're being sucked back into a situation that you kind of feel like you've escaped from. And this reminds me of some of the literature on depression and what causes depression in people. And one of the theories behind it is that it's experiences of so-called entrapment and defeat that lead to people experiencing depression, situations that you can't escape from and you also can't win inside of, and specifically situations where we feel inferior to others, where we experience shame, and where we feel like we need to engage in what are sometimes referred to as submission behaviors. And we can think about environments where that tends to happen to us, and often it's with our family, and maybe in particular with our family during these kinds of holiday situations. And this is why it's so important to do everything that we can to experience a sense of agency around the holidays. And we talked about this at some length for the rest of the conversation. And there are a lot of different ways that we can express ourselves and express our ability to influence our environment. One of the things that Rick and I kind of got into it about during the conversation was this idea of having what I think he called a blessing disposition, this feeling of general goodwill, love, and compassion toward other people inside of the group. And I kind of nudged on that idea a little bit because I was kind of coming from the perspective of somebody who feels like they're running on empty. It's all they can do to kind of get in the door to be with this family that mostly just kind of drives them crazy. And wow, wouldn't it be really hard to carry that kind of a kind of a disposition? He said yes, and also gave some recommendations for how somebody could do it anyway, or the benefits that we can get from organizing ourselves inside of a situation with that kind of energy. But that itself, having that disposition, is a choice. You can choose to have it or not. It's a way to express your agency. It's a tool in your toolbox. And there are a lot of other ways to express agency as well. One way to express agency is by knowing what a win looks like, 
before you walk in the door because experiences of success are one of the best ways to feel like we're influencing our environment. Another one is knowing how you're going to ride that line between wanting to really express yourself on the one hand and really, you know, speak what's in your heart now that you can. And on the other hand, knowing that sometimes discretion is truly the better part of valor. It's about getting through things, having it be all okay, and trying to keep the sailing as smooth as possible. And you can make that choice. And that's just what I want to emphasize again and again here. Another way that you can express agency is by holding different kinds of boundaries. And one of the things that I mentioned that I want to reinforce at the end here is that boundaries are not arguments. A lot of people think that a boundary is essentially an argument. You need to argue about whether or not you're going to hold the boundary with other people. And often when we express our boundaries to other people, it moves naturally into an argument with them. We say, here's what I'm going to do, and they try to debate us out of it. If you're an adult, with the ability to leave a situation, you don't actually have to argue. You can just do what you're going to do. You can express your boundary clearly. You can say it without any topspin at all. You can say, hey, this is just the way it's going to be if you do this thing, and I'm really sorry that you feel how you feel about it, but it just kind of is what it is. And then they argue with you about it, and you say, you know what? I'm just not going to debate it. It's really clear that this is an issue for me. I've expressed that. Uh, I don't think ill of you. I'm not trying to make this weird. I'm just letting you know how it's going to be if that thing happens. And then in the moment, if the thing happens, you can hold your boundary. You can not engage with the person. You can excuse yourself from the table. You can walk outside and take a couple of deep, slow breaths. You can do whatever you need to do. And yeah, they might say something. And if they say something, you can shrug and go, yep, that's what I did. You don't have to argue about it. And as Rick said, of course, there are situations where people's behavior is so problematic, so inappropriate, so not deal withable that you can't do that. And the only real option is to try to exit the situation as effectively as possible, as skillfully as possible, with as little threat and risk to yourself as possible. And I am really sorry if you're somebody who has had experiences like that where you've had to find that separation from other people in that way. And then finally, we close the conversation by talking about experiences of grief and loss during the holidays, and particularly ambiguous experiences of loss, where we feel the sense of yearning for the thing we never had. There's a sense of losing something without totally being able to put our finger on what it is that we've lost. And Rick in classic Rick fashion, moved a little cosmic with this and talked about the uh, falling away and the arising of things and how there's this natural movement in life from a loss to a gain, from a gain to a loss. And this pattern that we'll see if we look back over the course of our life, where there's this flow of one to the other and how by moving into a more direct experience of that process, it can really give us a lot of peace about whatever's happened in our lives. And then something that I added at the end was just this feeling that, you know, it's really helpful for people who come from fractured family systems in particular, or people who just have a feeling in their life like they haven't quite gotten what they wanted, is to remain optimistic about what could be possible in the future. That can be a great resource. Another great resource can be finding versions of the thing that can be true for you in the present, even if the past was decidedly imperfect. And that can be particularly helpful for people who have complex PTSD and related experiences to complex PTSD. 
So I really hope that you found this episode helpful. This was a interesting one for us to record. We really got into it and we kind of found our way throughout the conversation to where we landed at the end. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it wherever you're listening to it now on. Maybe leave a rating and a positive review. And you can even find us on Patreon if you'd like to support us in other ways. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.